I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode six of season one, featuring special guest Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg on liberation theology. Today's episode was originally recorded on March 25th, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book that this podcast takes as its namesake, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, Daily Prayer for Today's Catholic, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Building a Movement of the Ecumenical Christian Left, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, where Peter is, there is the church. And the Juan Diego Network, Catholic audio for Latinos. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. All listeners to Folk Phenomenology are able to get a whole year subscription to Commonweal for just $9.95. Be sure to check the show notes for the links uh, for that promotion and for our wonderful featured sponsor of Commonweal Magazine, along with all the other great uh, sponsors of Folk Phenomenology. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology yourself, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave us a review or a rating, and you can even drop a tip. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media with dedicated Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook accounts. In last week's episode, I had a candid and colorful conversation with my old friend, Sofia Elena Gurule, on immigration, abolitionism, and also our shared kinship as Mexican-Americans, uh, in particular, uh, our families within the Southwest parts of the United States. This week, I think we see a great deal of the spiritual principles that were invoked and alluded to in last week's episode that was much more of a kind of real politic uh, episode. Sophia really does emphasize the question of power, but she always admitted to there being this spirituality of abolitionism. And towards the end, of course, she talked about the primacy of love to the work of liberation. In this episode, we go much further into those themes, and we encounter them on explicitly theological terms with the fantastic theologian Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg, who guides us into the topic through our shared love of St. Oscar Romero, and 
we reach a point in the interview where although I had never spoken to Vanessa before this interview, where we truly begin to share our personal faith journeys. And there was a point in the conversation where I felt as if I was not in an interview, but almost in a kind of prayer meeting. It felt like worship. Vanessa and I went from discussing an intellectual, theological tradition to witnessing and giving testimony to the power of God, not only in our lives, but in the people and our communities and within history itself. And this is the meaning, not only, I believe, of liberation theology, but also a part of what it means to love the world. Dilexi mundum. We have Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg with us today on Folk Phenomenology. Vanessa, welcome, bienvenida. Thank you for coming on Thank to you. my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, to chat with you today. Yeah, so the day that we're recording um, today is the day after the feast day of St. Oscar Romero. Yes. Um, and I, I really actually wanted to start there uh, because you posted, I thought, just a, a really heartfelt and really moving, but also, I think, um, almost like a primer for... Uh, people uh, who are interested, for instance, in the church in Latin America, mm. peace and justice, preferential option for the poor, liberation, mm. theology. Um, I thought your your thread was so uh, personal and so wonderful. I wonder if you could maybe uh, start by, by saying a few words about that thread and about what you shared and maybe about some of the reception towards it and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just to clarify, this is the one from yesterday from Oscar. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Romero. So, yeah. I mean, I have. Um, I don't. I don't know what the word would be. Uh, I'm just. I feel very close to Oscar Romero, especially in the last few years in my life. Um, I think for me, the last few years have really been characterized by um, learning about liberation as a whole. And then kind of going into the specifics of it. Um, and one of the people that I feel has been walking with me in this journey has been Asco Romero. And and um, and so the thread I shared yesterday, for me, when I learned about Oscar, you know, I, I knew about him as a child. I think like when you grow up Hispanic, even if you're not from El Salvador, you know, Romero is the voice of the people. And it's the voice of the people that when you talk to seminarians from Latin America, you know, some of them fear his voice and some of them hope to be his voice in their in their realities, right? In their local ecclesial communities. And I think what I love about Romero was he was so he was he was for el pueblo like he was for the people he knew his vocation he knew his role he understood what it meant to be a shepherd and he did not let anything limit him from being part of the pueblo he he like he wasn't kind of this just hierarchical outsider right he was very embedded in the life and the culture of his people and 
when I talked about that in the thread yesterday, you know, like he he was about this concept of liberation. You know, some of his critics say that he he would not like to be known as a liberation theologian, which sure. fine. But at the same time, like he embodied this beautiful model, this beautiful praxis of what it meant to be a liberated people of God within a society that has so many limitations and structures and systems of oppression. And um yeah, and, and I, f- I feel like for a lot of us, especially with the last few years, um, the voice of Romero is a, kind of a voice of light and darkness. You know, even though his life ended um, so tragically, it was, it, it, it's a testament to who he is that like we are still so animated by who he was and we're so so driven um especially in latin america as a people by the way in which he he cared and loved his for his community so yeah i I think for me yesterday sharing that thread on twitter and kind of sharing a little bit about how i have felt um challenged by him uh, for me it was kind of sharing a little bit of what i feel is you know i think we all have kind of personal relationships with some of our favorite saints and that's yeah. kind of like my personal relationship with Romero is he challenged me really hard, you know, and in spaces that I did not want to be challenged in. And um, I'm so thankful that like God is using him to do that in my life right now. Sure. Yeah. Would you mind saying maybe one or the two of the challenges that you find to be like the, the hardest yeah. ones from Romero? Well, I think like, you know, this this idea of being with the poor, right? Mm. Like we get so attached to materialistic things, to consumerism, to the nature of capitalism, you know, here in the United States. And, you know, I know in my life, like there have been so many moments where I know God has placed me in a place to, to, to be with the poor and to really be at the margins. And because it was uncomfortable or challenging, I kind of backed away. Mm. And... And when I read Romero's homilies, you know, I feel myself being once more pu- pushed into that space mm-hmm. to take a look at my own life and like reflect on my own life. Like, what are the things that I'm, you know, perpetuating, buying into that are harming other people and keeping them marginalized and keeping them at the margins, you know, and not bringing them to the table. And I think that's how Romero challenges me. You know, he he draws me into what the pueblo is which is this communion of people who not only suffer together but also you know are are supposed to be liberated together mm-hmm. and i think that's so beautiful but it's challenging because you have to decenter yourself like i think romero does that beautifully he decenters himself um at, at, at that point in his life where he has kind of a shift right and he centers the pueblo and that's very hard because as humans, like especially the way we're raised with, you know, kind of American pedagogies and whatnot here in the States, it's very about us, right? Centering mm-hmm. myself, how do I feel? What makes me feel good? And I think when you read Romero, Romero is very adamant about, you know, how do we kind of, how do we abandon ourselves to better yeah. love others? And that's yeah. so profound, but it can be so challenging. Yeah, no, I think... I mean, so for me, one of the things that is particularly difficult in terms of Romero's um, witness is, you know, I, I recently did an interview with Sofia Gurule, and mm-hmm. afterwards, uh, our kind of our interview spilled over into talking about the fact that, like, you know, 
we were talking about sort of a certain kind of privilege that you know that she comes from and how mm-hmm. in some cases in her activist work people will be like oh you know was it hard growing up and she's like no <laughs> and how for me you know i i didn't grow mm-hmm. up that way i grew up yeah. differently um and you know growing up poor in the church so kind of white collar poverty because mm-hmm. my dad was working in the church um even though i was in the church being poor like being in the church didn't help all the things about being poor it did help mm-hmm. some of them it gave you some social capital and stuff right so for me the difficulty in hearing not just the with the poor but of the poor mm-hmm. is in many ways um well i don't want to be poor because mm-hmm. it sucked and yeah. and I, and i don't want that for my kids i don't right. want that for my family um and and the call to be with the poor is like okay in some sense i can cheat on that because it's like well my some of my relatives are poor or like you know like there's right right you know but with the poor uh, is one thing but of the poor is another although at the same time i'm just thinking here kind of out loud like i lived Mm -hmm. in mexico and reynosa for a little while and i recall Mm -hmm. the day when i invited a friend to my house which when you're poor the invitation to the house is always a weird thing Mm, uh, yeah, it's like it's like inviting someone to ride in your car whenever like you don't have a very nice one. Right. It's, it can be really embarrassing. It's one of these like right. super embarrassing things. Um, and I remember inviting a friend to um, to my house, and on the way there, saying something, um, saying something along the the lines of like, um, "Oh, look, we don't really have a living room." Mm. you know yeah and, and his reply to me was we don't have a floor wow right because yeah. he lived in, at a home where they were just brushing you know the way you sweep the floor every day right. and it kind of gets really hard and you put water on it and i remember then living in a really poor colonia in reynosa being poor but being awoken up to the fact that whoa i have an american passport I have, you know, like yeah. all of a sudden I realized like that even then I wasn't poor. So what Romero does though is he forces me to go back in a way into mm. both the experience of being poor and, and, and of poverty, but also knowing that if you've been poor, you know how much poorer the poor can be, right? Yeah. Yep. And 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 this is all this is all personal for my side, um, but I think it's one thing that like is a little bit of a of a limit sometimes of activist circles where anti capitalism anti capitalism great, I mean fantastic as far as I'm concerned. But the call of Romero and I would say of Francis and of Medellin and Puebla and Gutierrez mm-hmm. and now we've launched ourselves into the big LT liberation <laughs> theology. It's actually not just anti-capitalism, and in some right. sense, one could argue it's not anti-capitalist so much as it's um, for and of and with and by the poor. It's not about poverty, exactly. capitalism. You know, capital P, the the poverty industrial complex. I call it sometimes yeah. of anti-capitalism. It's really about the poor, the specific poor, the embodied poor. The, mm-hmm. the poverty of Christ that we that we see in the Gospels, right? Um, right. 
that's a challenge for me. I don't know how you how you read that, and I wonder if you might talk a bit more about your ongoing engagement with liberation theology and what stands out in some of the other texts, perhaps as well. Yeah, no, I mean, as you were saying that, the word that came to mind was agency, right? So, in reading Gutierrez, and you know, I have here, I have here what I'm like my two, the two books that I started with, right? Okay. And um, all bookmarked, all highlighted. But in reading Gutierrez and reading Boff, you know, I read some Sobrino in grad school. They are super too concerned about this this transformative welcoming back of a person's agency into the community, right? Yeah. Because like you look at the Gospels, and this is what I love. I've been I've been praying with the Gospels during Lent, and you look at the Gospels, and like whoever Jesus heals, both physically or whoever he is, like your sins have been forgiven. Like there is this restoration of that person's agency back into the community. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes beyond just what the eyes of the disciples might see in the healing or what their ears might hear it, it's this it's this restoration of of the human person back not just in communion with god but in communion with the rest of the body of christ and you know as i've been like doing all this this personal side work reading research of liberation theology it's always interesting to me you know where the critiques come from because the critiques are like it's too much about the world right it's too into the world and into the structures of the world but then the critiques are as well you know they're only concerned with the things that are like you know what i I don't know if i'm like there's this weird kind of complex going on there and when i think when you get in that mindset with liberation theology of just seeing only i guess the the economic kind of base critiques you miss out you miss the mark right yeah, because yeah, yeah. gutierrez and sobrino in, in both these books you know on the side of the poor and introducing liberation theology several times in the text they're like this like this whether we're taking points from from mark from marxism or social the, the, we're just doing some contextual work right mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. anyone who studies theology knows it's contextually influenced because we are people who live in the world yeah, and yeah, yeah. the way we encounter the divine is still affected by the way in which we live in this world because that's all we know and that's what we're capable that's all we're capable of but if you just you know, really read the text several times in in the pieces they say, you know, that's just a side part. But what we're really what we're really focused on is this God of the Bible who becomes incarnational, right? And becomes one with us and suffers and laughs and has triumphs with us. And we forget that liberation theology is deeply tied into the Eucharist, deeply tied into the incarnational reality of Jesus Christ. And the language that it's using of hope is not an economic-based language. It's resurrection. That's the language of hope that liberation theology is so adamantly, you know, concerned about that being the locus of everything. yeah, and I feel like it's for me. It's just been awakening all these different things too, you know. Because um, I, I was telling a friend, I didn't realize that so much of my upbringing was marked by liberation theology, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think my parents did either. I don't think we knew the language. And then I yeah. remember the first time I heard liberation theology was in college, and it was from the side of like, we don't talk about this. We don't. This is this is like not heretical, but kind of heretical, and yeah. so. 
as like the good abiding little Catholic college student that I was, I was like, well, then I'm not going to dive in, you know? And yeah. it wasn't until graduate school that I started learning more about it. And then with everything just happening in the last year and a half, it's where I am finding life-giving theology is in reading mm. these texts um, and also reading a lot of black liberation theologians as well or feminist mm -hmm. liberation theologians. Like sure. there's this beautiful component to that, that idea of what liberation looks like. Yeah, no, this, I mean, um, it's actually so important to me. Um, I, I find it actually, it's funny because it, if you read like Medellin, that mm -hmm. introductory that introductory statement, <laughs> if you read it in the context of the critiques, it almost sounds like Medellin was listening to the contemporary critiques and addressing them all. Like it, it, it yes. actually is very, yes. very conservative. Yes, it, it rejects Marxism by name, yes. like yes. openly. Yeah, uh, which which of course was a controversial. Uh, some would say strategic, political, like, you know, amongst the liberation right, theologians, right. there there's, of course, the rejection of Medellin and Aparecida and Salam and Puebla mm -hmm. as too, as, 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 um, too ecclesiastical, too hierarchical, those things. Right. And <laughs> the, um, I mean, Gutierrez, both, you know, uh, the Juan Segundo, like, like the, mm -hmm. the, the architects of these ideas uh, made a choice yeah. to, uh, I mean, for instance, there's a lot made of, of 79 when John Paul II decides to kind of show up, right? At, yes, at Puebla. that's one of my favorites. Is he's yeah, just like, hey, yeah, guys, I'm yeah, here. yeah, I know. It's like, hey, what's up? Let's chill. Um, yeah. And they're like, oh, no, not, not him. Um, but like that story could be such a rich and, and difficult mm. and 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 thick story of in some sense the story of Vatican II making its way throughout the world. It could be such an right. important moment even in the pontificate of John Paul II, which you as right. we know, especially after the McCarrick report, is very complicated to work right. through. Right. Yet instead it's all about it's all about that one, you know, admonition and and you know nothing else and you know the the faithfulness the gospel focus the theology i guess that's the part is that liberation theology is a theology it's right. a series of, of statements and claims and pastoral uh uh words seeking god seeking yeah. you know and i think that's so important one of my, my uh main kind of sources this is sort of my like the philosopher's move is always the onion move right the thing before mm -hmm. the thing um so whenever i read gutierrez whenever i read him with my students i know that i think five times he talks about this guy in brazil running around all over the place named paulo freire right yes yeah who's yeah who's being who's being counseled by helder camara the the venerable uh camara mm -hmm. and uh and many others in Catholic action and whatnot. Freire, and Freire, I see, is not a liberation theologian. I see Freire as a as an antecedent, a, a predecessor, a proto mm. Mm, a proto evangelium yeah. to to the liberation theology. Mm -hmm. Freire has this amazing statement that I'd love to hear you respond to, and I think it kind of um, adds to this 
to this Giso we're making here of, of liberation theology. Mm. He, he says, Now dicotomiso entre la mundanidad y la transcendalidad. And, and it's in, that's my really bad Portuguese. It's, I don't dichotomize between mundanity, worldliness, mm. and transcendentality. And, and to me, that, that admonition, now dicotomiso, no dicotomiso. I do not dichotomize between the horizontal line of the cross and the vertical line of the cross, right? Right. To me, the, the center of the cross and Jesus' heart is what we find at the intersection of the horizontal and the vertical. It's where mm-hmm. he calls out to the father in despair, but he looks down upon his mother with John, right? It's mm-hmm. it's this ability to, to to call out to the heavens, but also look down to the ground and forgive the soldier. And 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 to me, like <laughs> um, first of all, I don't know how much more orthodox, how much more Christian, how much exactly. more <laughs> theological we can right. get here. And, uh, and your point, which I think is an excellent rejoinder, that like those who claim that liberation theology is too invested in worldly affairs are only making a worldly critique. Exactly. Let's hear them respond to the, to the horizontal, to now dicotomiso exactly. and the horizontal. I wonder how you resonate with that Freudian line. I don't know if you've heard of it before. No, that was the first time I heard of it. I mean, I think for me, right, it brings up two things that I noticed very very uh, like onset in my in my journey with liberation theology is that what's primary for Gutierrez and for all of these liberation theologians you know pre and, and, and post Medellin and you know post the creation of Selam and all that is that the locus is positive faith right hmm. their locus is is not the, the second part of it is maybe more in its composition attached a little bit more to the world but the heart of it the, the nucleus of all of this is is faith positive faith mm-hmm. and that faith is in dialogue with liberation theology and liberation theology in dialogue with that faith as a whole mm-hmm. and Gutierrez is so adamant about making that point that the primary locus is, is positive faith, and then the second is the experience of the oppressed, the experience of those at the margins. Um, and I think he's intentional about doing this. First, he's a Dominican, right? And yeah. so I, I studied, I, I got my theology degree, my bachelor's at, at a Dominican college, and okay. what was grounded into me was veritas, you know, truth, truth, mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it's every theology class. Yeah. And I think sometimes people forget that like Gutierrez has this Dominican charism that he's carrying through all of this with him. And I think he's able to engage with the world so beautifully and so profoundly, even when it's challenging, because he's always going back to those central truths of the church. And and he's, he's always going back into, you know, the fulfillment of liberation is not the full fulfillment of liberation right it's not going to be communism capitalism socialism no for gutierrez it's christ now all those things might have a different variable that they play in the formula but the end game is communion with god yeah and so when i look at the critiques of liberation theology i'm thinking well how much of gutierrez did you read or did you just go off the talking points (laughs) that everyone just you know what i mean yeah, yeah. yeah because if you read him from the get-go, that's what he's trying to present to the reader. And and I think that's why liberation theology comes about, right? Because those who are at the margins, the poor, they 
have this very beautiful relationship with the incarnational Christ that has suffered as they are suffering now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it, and it brings to mind that, you know, the incarnation was a testament to the fact that God is interested in both the physical and spiritual welfare of his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when Gutierrez is masterminding kind of all of this, right, in his work with mm-hmm. other theologians and their work with the poor, he's going back to those central kind of truths of, you know, who does Jesus associate with in the Gospels? You know, who does God associate mm-hmm. with in the Psalms? Who who do the prophets associate with? Who does God call for the prophets to associate with? You know, um, if it's with a ruler in the Old Testament, it's usually from a place of you need to figure yourself out and you need to you know do something about the way you're treating the poor. Because when it's with the widow, when it's with the orphan, when it's with those who have been cast out from their communities, it's from a place of liberating them into a space back at the table. Um, and so while the tools of liberation theology may be related to social sciences, the the core reality of it is is Christ. Christ yeah. is the center of all of it. It all revolves around Him, and um, and it just I mean just think I mean just think about how, the way Latin America right expresses their relationship with the divine and the ways in which they associated it. You know, I live five minutes from the border here in El Paso, um, and you know there are a ton of protests happening around this area on Juarez right now because of the feminine inside that is happening to mm-hmm. to these mexican women and what's really profound to me um I took a class with Dr. Nancy Piera Madrid. She used to teach at Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. And I think she teaches somewhere in California now, but she wrote this book on suffering and salvation in Ciudad Juarez. And mm. she talks about how these these women, right? These Hispanic women are using the imagery, for example, of our Blessed Mother as like the liberator. Yeah. Like she is going to walk with us, journey this this journey of tears, of pain, of anger, because yeah. she was able to do that in not only, you know, having Christ within her for nine months, but in raising mm-hmm. the Christ who was going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think when you step back and you look at the way countries in, in, in Latin America have embraced this relationship with the divine, then you don't miss the mark, right? Because yeah. then you're being you're being cognizant of this is this is how they're connecting with God, and it's in a it's in a transforming way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, that's really powerful. It's it's funny because you now have me in sort of uh, two roads I want to to, <laughs> to walk, and so I'll choose one. So because if I try and do them both, it'll just come out like 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 nonsense. <laughs> um, I, I talked with uh, Jeannie Gaffigan uh, a, about a month ago now um, about uh, my uh, so my my society, my academic society, the Philosophy of Education Society, uh, were approached by a member of the uh, Latin American Philosophy of Education Society um, had been approached uh, on our behalf to write a statement in support of the normalistas the 43 or no this 47 mm-hmm. uh, uh, who who were who had uh, the the desaparecidos yeah. in ayotzinapa and this happened some time ago now and the context of our conversation was how uh in the in the anglophone media 
I just had a weird intuition that something was missing and mm. I couldn't find it in Spanish written media but as soon as I found a uh, YouTube of Univision there was almost this comedic element like things are always bad in Mexico but guess what this is even worse uh, that kind of a thing <laughs> right, you know right and we were talking in the context of how like humor and the tragic comic kind of mm. was required um, later on though uh, after I had written that I, I went to go see a, a documentary at our Latin American Film Festival here And there was a documentary that was essentially like some random guy managed to get uh, entry to Ayotzinapa and wow. basically just, you know, walked around with a camera. And I hope he had uh, permission for all these uh, <laughs> shots and stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the imagery was so striking because the story of the normal in Latin America and in Mexico has a very secular and a very anti-religious and a very kind of, uh, especially in Mexico, uh, after the, the, the Porfiriato and everything, um, you know, the, 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 the teacher's college equivalent, the normal school, uh, as we'd say yeah. in English. Uh, has a very secular identity. The Cristeros, in fact, targeted mm -hmm. public school teachers as the spreaders of the false doctrine, and they lynched them along the Mexican railroad. I mean, that's yeah. There's a there's kind of this like this hallmark secularism, Marxism, and so when you look at the murals of the of the normal, um, in, in in the state of Guerrero, uh, you see Che. And you mm, see marks, mm -hmm. and you yeah. see, you know the. But guess what else you see? And you see these at at the at the memorials of their graves. You see rosaries. You see yeah. Guadalupe. You yeah. see, and they're saying there, which is why they didn't like the American Anglophone press reporting that these were dead, mm -hmm. and why they were disappeared, desaparecidos, was because of that saying of, um, nos enterraron, pero no sabíamos que eran éramos semillas. Yes. Yep. And when you think of that, they buried us, but they didn't know that we were seeds. And we put it into the poetics of your reading of Mary carrying Christ as as the, the, the seed of Adam to redeem the world. But then mm -hmm. also Christ being buried, but they didn't know. Right, right. He would resurrect. Right. There's a thoroughly both incarnational but also salvific uh, narrative here which to your point before if you're basic about this and you don't do your work which involves not only reading but also using the poetic imagination of Latin America and of exactly. Christianity for God's yeah. sake right. you miss all these things right you, um, you do So that to me is such a great point with what you brought up with Juarez. The the second point though that and I'd like to hear more about this because you know there's the naysayers who say well Romero was never a liberation theologian. He right. was skeptical of those things. Right. Okay. And <laughs> in 1977, <laughs> Rutilio Grande, his friend, was assassinated. Right. And it changed his life. Right. And this story is all over the place. I have recently been rereading uh, Gutierrez's uh, long book on Bartolomé de las Casas. Mm. And in that book, he makes it a point, because they're fellow Dominicans, you know. Right, uh, right. He makes it a point, to your point on truth, he makes it a point to show that Las Casas didn't 
acquire his defense of the indígena, his later defense of all enslaved people of, of the Americas through Aquinas. Mm. He acquired it through personal and direct contact by yeah. witnessing and the way of, 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 the, of, of doubting Thomas the Apostle. And I think there's an incarnational aspect to Romero's conversion of sorts, mm -hmm. uh, to Las Casas, detailed by Gutierrez. I often think of Ivan Illich, who, who goes to Washington Heights and he finds the Puerto Ricans, this Viennese, Austrian, Italian guy. He finds the Misa Boricua and it changes his life, right? Right. And, and you know, Freire himself uh, in his life had to experience poverty personally in his own family to mm -hmm. kind of be awoken uh, to that. And I wonder, like, on the one hand, there's the theological, which we've emphasized. But on the other hand, there's also not just the social scientific or the worldly or secular, but the embodied encounter with the the wounds of Christ in our world mm -hmm. that definitely motivated and changed Romero and his heart, Las Casas. I mean, we could go on and on. We could go to Paul of Tarsus if we wanted to. Right. Right? I don't know. That's a lot there, but I wonder if well, what you have there. I, I, so I was thinking about what how our conversation would turn out a, f a few days ago as I was kind of preparing and, and whatnot. Um, and I think saying liberation theology, you know, does not just lock us in one venue. Liberation is the mark of the gospel, right? We don't... It, you. you and, and what's beautiful about um, Gutierrez is that he says he hopes that we reach a point in our society and within the body of Christ that we don't even call it liberation theology anymore. That is just theology. And that all uh. theology, all pedagogies of faith are just marked by liberation. And, um, and so I think kind of going, going back to the point that you, you brought up, I think, I don't know, for me, it's liberation holds us accountable to the other mm. like at its core it holds us accountable to the way in which we love the other and the way in which we let god love us and um i think that accountability makes us restless right because mm -hmm. most of us don't know how to take constructive criticism well right or or <laughs> most of us don't know how to uh, not feel uncomfortable when we're doing this work of decentering, or most of us struggle with having to seek reconciliation or forgiveness because our our pride has been wounded, um, our own imagery of ourselves maybe has been wounded by the actions we perpetuate to others, and you know, call Romero a liberation theologian or, or not, it doesn't really matter because he still lived a life that was marked by the liberation of the gospel, and and that's it. I mean, if you want, if if the critiques. If the critics want to take away, you know, the name of liberation theology, you can take it. You can run with it. We're still going to be living the liberation of the gospel, you know, yeah. and, 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 and it doesn't putting it into a, a theological space doesn't keep us bounded to just that space. It's about this expansion of everything we do must be marked by liberation because that's what the resurrection is, right? Yeah. You know, that the, the resurrection is this liber liberating moment. Um, I was watching this video the other day for an internship that I'm a part of about the way in which uh, early Christians used art, right, to catechize, to communicate, mm. to, to pass the tradition of the faith. 
And one of the images they showed was an image in one of the catacombs that shows Jesus ascending to hell and kind of breaking through these doors of death, right? And liberating Adam and Eve and or, or limbo, right? And that is so striking for me because everything that Jesus did had a praxis of liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything that is tied to us within theology should carry that praxis. If we are to embody, you know, mm-hmm. being part of this, this body of Christ. Um, and I think liberation theology does that beautifully in that it, it doesn't do that just in one way, right? So Boff talks about how there are these um, three parts to liberation theology. There's the social analytical, there's the hermeneutical, um, and then there's the practical pastoral. Mm. And what's beautiful about this this trifold, right? This this th- threefold kind of praxis take on it is it also reminds us in many ways of like the Trinitarian God. Like I love yeah. when I see three yeah. in yeah, theology because I'm immediately like Trinitarian God, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it again, these three parts are calling us into relationship with ourselves, with the community, and with God. And there's this beautiful kind of axis of liberation that is constantly supposed to be moving within these three parties that, again, call it theology, call it liberation theology. I don't know if that matters as much as it matters what we do with the gift of liberation that we get through sal- salvation history. Um, yeah. I don't know if that kind of, I kind of went on a little tangent. I don't know if that kind no, of answered. No, that's, that's, I think, I think that's exactly, in some sense, that's the point. Um, I mean, the question of, of liberation theology isn't sort of, you know, um, it's not about creating a competing idea of theology. No, uh, right. It's ultimately about how we live and about the fact that the way one lives in Latin America, the, La- the Latin American bishops are very kind of sociologically specific about this, mm-hmm. uh, forces upon the conscience a particular... Um, relation not only internally but also externally to power and like you know this is a bit of the subtext of the of the documents but you know we all know who killed Romero right right and we all know who killed Martin Luther King Jr. right exactly and you can say that King was you know recently people are saying he's colorblind blah 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 it's like yeah well if that got him killed (laughs) then your argument is kind of you know, falling apart at the seams. If Romero not being a liberation theologian, not being a Marxist, being all these things, nonetheless right. presented so, this kind of a challenge to power. Right? Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and in some sense, there's something even Christological about that. You know, Christ was 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 you know obviously um, questioned so many times about uh, you know. Are you saying this? Are you saying that? Are you a radical? Are you saying you're the king of mm-hmm. the Jews? Like, he, and time and time again, he would say, you know, uh, no, I'm not saying anything radical, but I'm the son of God. Like, you know, <laughs> you right, know right. he had that thing going on, and um, exactly. And nonetheless, it, it was a cause of of rejection, and it was a cause that that uh, that that had him treated like a common you know criminal by by the empire and so to me you know it's almost in a way where one could say because they do say this oh christ wasn't a radical the beatitudes are not uh Mm. you know uh, i said you'll always have your poor so you know 
get around that one. They'll say the same thing about the prophets if, if they mm-hmm. need to. In some sense, they'll say anything to avoid. Well, and, and, and isn't that the irony is that I think a lot of us often use the theology of the eschatological coming, the second coming of Christ, right, as an excuse to not be catalysts of liberation because we... I think the association with liberation often uh, is utopia, which is if you study any liberation theologian, scholar, poet, very rarely is this utopian mindset presented. What's part of liberation is the fact that, you know, we are flesh people who feel so deeply and, and our feelings are so deeply integrated within the community in which we find ourselves in that um, while we know that we are not the saviors, we can still be catalysts of salvation history in this present moment. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I feel at times frustrates me when I'm sitting at the table at the church is that I often hear the excuse of, well, suffering will always be there. The poor will always be there. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating for me that we have kind of turned to that excuse, right? That we're, that that's our defense mechanism now when it comes to holding ourselves accountable. Um, Because, you know, this, this theology is part of an evolving world and the world is constantly evolving and theology evolves with it right um (laughs) but but to to kind of keep theology here as the world keeps moving forward because we're like well we're still gonna have suffering sin and all this it it does a lot of discredit to theology and it does a huge disservice to who we believe god is right Mm. because if God is Alpha Omega, omnipotent, you know, all things, yeah. it, to say that we stop here as everything else keeps moving in this direction, <laughs> we, we're missing the mark, you know? And, yeah. and liberation is the tool that keeps us moving forward within that suffering, within that joy, within that triumph, within death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, yeah, you know, in what you brought up, I just, I keep, I went back to like some of the biggest excuses I see as to why people do not want to converse about what liberation theology really is, is because then you don't have the excuse anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the excuse anymore to be like, well, what can I do? You know, I live in, I don't know, Virginia and, I, you know, what can I do for the poor in Latin America? And it's like, mm-hmm. there is so much you can do because you have been. Uh, given the breath of God to be this catalyst within salvation history for others. And so, yeah. And, and I think too, like, I think just, I love the, the little kind of uh, joke you made there about like people saying Jesus isn't radical. Right. But then he's like, eat my body, drink my blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what's so striking about jesus too is he talks about this kingdom of god right Mm -hmm. over and over and over Mm -hmm. again and it becomes so threatening not just to the people he that are listening to him that later on turn against him but to the very institution of government at that time yeah and that hasn't changed to talk Mm -hmm. about the kingdom of god today and Mm -hmm. in any framework of politics you know social context or economic sciences is still threatening to us Right, mm-hmm. because w- in the kingdom of God, we we're not the ones with the power, and it was never yeah. it was not intended to be that way because we're not God, we're not divine, and right. um, I think that 
we have to kind of step back and keep thinking like how is living a life marked by liberation helping to further the kingdom of God here as we pray in the Our Father? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that it, it's just, it's, it's, it's also interesting to me because um, there's still so much space that we have yet to discover within this, yeah. this context of theology. And yeah. there's a lot of new people coming on board or there's a lot more connections happening within demographics and cultures mm-hmm. about this type of theology. And um, to stifle it, I think, would do us great harm as a church. Yeah, I, I truly, no. I truly it's believe that. Global, it's definitely globalized. And, and what some critics might say is sort of unhelpful ways, the moment things globalize, you know, you have the people saying we did this already before right. and then you have the people saying um we've lost the true <laughs> right. meaning um uh, of the of the movement and so on and so forth um uh, you know I, I i know for instance there's a great deal of discussions of liberation in the context of like israel and palestine mm. um critical muslim studies of like an Islamic uh, theology of liberation, obviously mm-hmm. uh, black liberation theology, which I always feel kind of like like Cone specifically. Yes. You know. Yeah. Like it was very generous, I feel, for Cone to 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 adopt the language of liberation theology, mm. um, and and Freire wrote the foreword to that when it was published uh and to really kind of uh i I, i'm being careful here because i don't want to say that the uh black liberation theology in particular the black liberation theology from that you know the ame and, and 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 the sort of protestant um uh black churches is in some sense um owes any debts to to catholics Mm. But I think there was actual like radical generosity in Cone drawing on what was really already a liberation tradition, an abolitionist tradition. Mm-hmm. A, you know, in other words, like Cone could have let the Latin Americans do their thing, the Catholics, whatever. Right. And and, and one of the things that um I'm sure there's some scholar somewhere who will write and say, well, I wrote a whole thesis on this and I'll, I'll read it and I'll <laughs> thank them for their correction. But um, I've often wondered, like, honestly, I've just wondered, why is Cohn so generous? You know, I critiqued Cohn mm. in, in an essay I published in 2015 and, and he was still alive at the time and I sent it to him because I thought it was it was right to send him my critique. And he wrote me back and he said, Sam, this is, I don't take this as a critique. I, I see this as just a continuation of the work. Mm. So ever since yeah. then, I've been like, why is Cohn just so generous in, in what can be a brutal exchange of letters? You know, theology, mm-hmm. philosophy, you know, we are critical disciplines. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so one of the things I wondered, though, is... Cone's imaginary of like the cross and the lynching tree, yeah, is not only a, a, a tale of of the South of the United States, but it's a tale that extends all across Latin America, where to this day, 
um, black African um, peoples, the legacy of, of the enslavement of, 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 of uh, African peoples through, through the transatlantic uh, slave trade and chattel slavery. I mean, this, this extends from, from, from South America all the way up, you know. Um, and I wonder if Cohn perhaps was in some sense not just building from liberation theology, but offering something to the very mestizo criollo white Hispanic. Right, right. You know, um, present company included, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, myself, by the way, too. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, this is a weakness of, of I would say, liberation theology is an ability to understand uh, race in a way that I think um, black liberation theology in its very blackness always understood and always led with, you know. Uh, these are just, you know, extensions here, but I wonder what, you're, what, what you think of that. No, I mean, I've thought a lot about who was doing the writing and the preaching at that time, right? And I was doing some research on it a few days ago, and I think from Medellin, from Puebla, um, there's maybe only two or three women that are engaging in this conversation with all these sure. other men, right? Sure. Absolutely. And there are several moments where Gutierrez, you know, does highlight. Um, uh, like Afro-Latinos, where he highlights women um, in, in talking about all these different demographics that we must be catalysts of liberation for, right? Um, but that's as far as he goes. And so if I were to, I guess, critique parts of liberation theology within a Latin American context, it's that it's still very kind of men only in men only having the space to express this narrative of what liberation is. I've been doing a lot of research on um, various, uh, mainly Afro-Latina kind of social activists all across South America. So, um, you know, ones in Peru, Colombia, uh, Brazil, um, you know, the woman in El Salvador, Nicaragua, all these places, right? And unless you you have been either in a generational kind of oral tradition taught this, right, in your family, yeah. or you happen to fall upon, you know, um, an article or a piece that highlights these women, they're, they're not really at the forefront of the liberation movement as a whole. And that has that that is very frustrating for me, right? Because what I do love about Cone in reading, you know, the lynching tree is that um, Cone does make space. Like he doesn't just mention people who are at the margins. He's very yeah. intentional about making space to engage them in this conversation. And I wish Gutierrez, I wish Boff, I wish Sobrino did a little bit more of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's Oh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say Freire, for his part, um, uh, excoriates himself for this in his later, mm. in his later interviews of, of, of basically having the same default masculine Roman Catholic sensibility in terms right, of his right. work, you know. And mainly um, religious, too, you know. There's not a oh, lot yeah. of married men on that list uh, or single oh, men on that. Well, yeah. yeah. In that case, he's an <laughs> exception, you know, as a layman. Right. Um, uh, no, I think... I think you're absolutely right, and, and what's so scandalous about that, from a very folk uh, perspective, is 
when you peek into the window of mm. uh, of of the mass and you look at all those veiled <laughs> women <laughs> who are who are literally holding this church together yeah who are not generally speaking as prone to being lured away by the material Mm-hmm. temptations of capitalism and materialism and all these things you know um <laughs> i mean i don't want to i don't want to throw anything away um but i mean medellin salam and puebla and vatican II and all the things are, are are really important and the 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 Latin American woman, you know, Malcolm X has that famous saying that no one's more disrespected yeah. than the black woman. Yeah. And I think and, again, yeah. we can take this all the way down, uh, all the way down the Americas, and say mm-hmm. no one's more disrespective, uh, disrespective than 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 the Afro American, Afro Latin American woman, and women in general uh, across mm-hmm. this tradition have, uh, in some sense. S- and I'm thinking now about your own very, in my mind, beautiful and personal um, study of Romero specifically, but of the tradition. You know, yeah. um, they've always been there. They were certainly there before. You know, we can take this all the way to Mary. We can take oh, this yeah. to the guard to, to, to I the mean, resurrection. They've news. been they've been doing the liberating work before it was even called liberation yeah. theology in their yeah. communities. You know. Um, they've been working for labor rights. They've been working for farmers' rights. They've been working for women's rights. Um, they've been working with the poor and the marginalized. And um, again, not to knock on important things that have impacted our church, like Puebla, Medellin, you know, Vatican II, but they didn't need to. F- they didn't feel a need to have to be in the room to do the yeah. work. And so when I find myself very discouraged, I think of these women, right? Because I'm like, I'm not going to be at the table for a lot of this stuff because I am not a, a man and I'm not a, a religious, from a religious order or, or whatnot. You know, I am a, a, a Latina woman. Um, but I look to them as kind of these these beacons of the work of liberation is not a work in which you are held at this high regard and, and esteem in society. Mm. It's about being in communion with people. Yeah. That That's at its core. It's about being yeah. in communion with people. And then if you want to add the theological component, being in communion with people and with God. And so these women have been doing this for years, you know? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I do want to be like, we need to get them in the room and give them the props that they deserve. Just like all these men have gotten the props that, you know. I um, mean, it's a razor edge. It's a razor edge to walk. Yeah. And I'm particularly walking on a razor as 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 a man with all the inheritances of being a Mexican American machista man and but I mean so on the one hand the unaware <laughs> man thing to say is full blown kenosis woman is self emptying so on right. and so forth right, right right but of course that immediately runs into a perpetuation mm. of, of any number of the oppressive uh, things that have held 
you know, uh, my sister's in bondage for millennia. Mm. And that's not liberation, right? No. And right. so I think there's there's actually here, I think there's a theological interval that's just, it's either this small as, as like the, the space between my fingers or it's 17 miles wide. It, we're either missing it because it's right in front of us or because we're inside of it, right? Right. But but it's this 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 idea that the radical message of self-emptying and 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 of ridding ourselves of of, of selfish desire and all these things that we find in Paul and 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 in the kind of stoical disposition of Christianity that that doesn't mean that oppression is good. Right. And it doesn't mean that pleasure is bad either. To me, right. this is where, and I'm gonna pull a really, a really, I'm gonna do a real bad thing here. But I've done this, <laughs> I've done this bad thing before, and I've, been, I've been wrist slapped for it. And I probably deserve it. But personally, for me, just as, 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 as a Christian trying to, to, to know my faith, um, Benedict XVI and his retrieval of eros. From mm. the from the trash heap and Deus Caritas est, uh, even by crediting Nietzsche, <laughs> um, right? That for me uh, has been among the most radical and most liberating uh, mm. theological moments in my formation. And I read this sort of opening to what he eventually calls the Mad Eros of the Cross. Where God's agape is itself expressed through pure eros, yeah. That to me is 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 this erotic core of of the gospel that is that that's that's liberation. So if you know, there's these silly cheesy activist things of if I can't dance, it's not a revolution kind of a thing, you know. But I think mm-hmm. these are important things, right? That we need to be able to. Um, to dance and 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 find a, an interval of pleasure, and um, but it can't be that masculine, all-consuming right. fire of right. eros either, right? Now I'm right. Se- being sent to Teresa of Avila and her and her autobiography, right? right? Anyhow, uh, <laughs> what do you make of the mad eros of the cross and all this? I mean, I just. I think when I think of it, I think of like this, the, the concept of scandal, right? Mm. Like the scandal of the cross, the, the scandal of, of Holy Week. It's, it's riveting. It's, it's kind of intoxicating, you know, when you think mm. about it. Like I am always, I always find myself every Holy Week so enraptured in what we are uh, retelling through the gospel narratives and what we are um, maybe even physically acting out through the stations of the cross, um, mm. through, you know, sitting with Christ in adoration after our, uh, the liturgy on Holy Thursday, all these things, right? Um, the scandal of the fact that um, Christ brings life through death, mm. you know? And and I think sometimes that's so hard for us to c- compute because uh, we are living to die, right now in our human embodiment, right? And mm-hmm. um, and Christ kind of flips the formula on its head. And I don't know. I don't know if I have the right words to kind of express 
how the scandal of the cross is this major liberating tool in salvation history, Mm. right? Like the fact that Jesus bleeds, the fact that Jesus weeps, the fact that Jesus thirsts, like these are all very visceral reactions that we can have in our human embodiment and in our human experience. And the fact that the incarnational Christ has also had this encounter. I mean, what a scandal to have a God who sends his only begotten son to encounter the kind of recklessness of humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and it all kind of culminates right there in the cross. Cause it's, 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 I can, I always think about like, what could the disciples have been thinking right on good Friday? Mm-hmm. Like here's this man that they have followed for three years. They've poured, you know, their life into being with him, being in communion with him, in community with him, the, the friendships that must have been built. Like I think about the friendships between Christ and the disciples often, and then mm. you get to the cross and this utter sense of like, like desperation, you know, like the weeping and the wailing that's at that moment and thinking like, how can this be it? Like how, how can this be the end game? How can this be where it all closes? Um, and I think, you know, without without the cross we don't have the not just the scandal but the the language of hope from the resurrection right and i think that's what liberation theology focuses on so beautifully is that um it takes into full account that we will suffer right suffering is going to be a part of our experience here however it looks like for us individually for us within our families and our communities but we will suffer but what a scandal it is that god suffers with us mm. like I, I don't know i don't know if that's answering your question i i think i'm the the wheels are still kind of working through my head as i try to figure out how to articulate it but um i tell you what there's something about about the academic domestication of theology yes yeah that that um is in some senses uh a required restraint for the sake of a kind of uh, dialogue, for a kind of conciliar dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. the need for a certain degree of clarity and whatnot. But I think sometimes that domestication goes a bit too far, and we forget that ultimately theology should 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 actually draw us in the very discussion, in the very discourse, in the very words, uh, like scripture. Like the confessions where, like, is Augustine talking to his mom, to himself, to the divine, Mm. to some other version of himself that he's thinking about? Uh, uh, Well, it's always to God. Wait, is he quoting scripture? Like, the the multivocal and polyphonic nature of, I would say, true theology, um, I think it's supposed to kind of sweep us away in various ways. And what's happening to me as you're speaking, in some sense, is... It's just this pyrotechnic series of associations. I was thinking, for instance, of the uh, the Jesuit prayer, the Anima Christi. Um, mm. I don't know if it's Jesuit. Yeah, I think it's Ignatius of Loyola. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the uh, the Sanguis Christi inebriame, the the blood of Christ inebriate me. Um, 
And then I was thinking about just the endings of that prayer, the sanctify me, save me, inebriate me, wash me, comfort me. Well, and, and doesn't it talk about also like hide me in your wounds? Yes, right? yes. Like how... Intra tua vulnera, abscondeme. Yeah, yeah. I always get like, I always get escalofrios. I always get chills <laughs> yeah. when I hear that, right? Because it's like, wow, like hide me in the wounds of Christ, yeah. you know, and... and the implications of being hidden in that in that place right of all places to be hidden in the wounds of christ um wounds that in his liberated body still have the marks right and 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 i think that what what liberation is trying to highlight is that like we will bear these marks right but they will also be marks that remind us of the moment when we were liberated the moment when we experience the true taste of liberation right. from the divine. And I, and I think that one of the things I, I, I learned after studying theology, right? And mm-hmm. you spend all your time studying it, all your time reading it. You're writing these like heavy worded papers. Um, I would sometimes after like, like, especially after my thesis, I was outside. I sat outside and I think of Aquinas, who at the end of his life, mm-hmm. you know, the story is he's he's throwing the summa in the fire. He's yeah. like, it's all hay. It's all hay. Yeah. I never want to be so captured by even the human engagement of theology that it removes me from the engagement of the divine. Yeah. If that makes sense. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I never want to get so caught up in just the reading and the studying that I just can't sit and be still and just be in awe of the fact that this is who God is and this is who I am to God and this is the community that God has created. Mm-hmm. And it's not about having these answers. It's not about even posing the questions. It's about simply being in this space with God and God's body and just living in that. And, and what does that look like? And, and, and what, you know, what does that entail for us as humans? I don't know. It, it kind of... It, it's, a, it's a spirit that kind of takes over me sometimes where I have to put the book down or I have to stop Googling or stop mm-hmm. listening to the podcast and just sit and be like, you are God mm. and that's enough. Right? Yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, and, and I think I have not had that experience in a long time. And then I started doing all this personal work with liberation theology, and I felt myself connecting once more with that encounter yeah. of you are God, and that is enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, you know, the the Mayan story of of, uh, of creation, the, their their genesis, uh, the Popol Vuh. The it's always striking to me that the second creation, the creation of the people of wood unlike the people of mud who just didn't hit the mark at all, they were basically um, functionally fine, but they Mm -hmm. had one flaw. They didn't know how to worship. So they were destroyed, you know? And, you know, Mm. I can read that the, 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 the moral message of that of that myth across Gilgamesh and across Genesis and across mm. you know so many different things and I think it resonates in, in in terms of you know even this you know Aquinas at the end of his life 
is throwing away his summa, which itself, in some sense, was just a textbook for seminarians. Like it wasn't kind of like that big right. of a deal. I know, I know. Like it, it wasn't what it is today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It hadn't, yeah. it hadn't become what it's what it's turned into. Um, right, right. I also think of Augustine at the end of his life, as the Vandal armies are pouring into North Africa, invading Hippo. You know, his church has you know a couple decades left, and it'll be gone forever. To present-day Algeria, right, um, and and he's writing his retractions, and the one retraction he doesn't write, the only book he doesn't retract from, everything else he's correcting and fixing. It's kind of like the mere opposite to Aquinas, who's throwing it all away. <laughs> Augustine's like, let me show, you know, let me yeah, let me like fix a few things. Yeah, yeah, ultimate kind of OCD editor kind of thing. He doesn't put put any retractions into his short dialogue with his son Adeodatus, which of course the name means given by a gift of God, Adeodatus. Um, he he doesn't retract anything from De Magistro, which I used to think um, in my more I guess with more academic bona fides, I would say, well, it was because De Magistro <laughs> is so perfect, you know he. He threads right. the needle of what is a teacher, what is language, Christ the inner teacher. It's it's mm. all the things in some ways that the confessions is kind of this this mess that happens to open up the question of time, evil, sin, and editing and a number of things. But in this dialogue, he just nails it. He's he's just it's beautiful, it's perfect. Um, and then I realize, no, you idiot. Uh, my friend Cristina Camarano, <laughs> she points to the 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 emotional tone of it. And the fact that it's a father talking to his son, and he's writing it after mm-hmm. that son at 16 years, as we read in the Confessions in Book Nine, uh, died. So it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's the dialogue is a book of mourning. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a book of memory of, of of one's son, of one's beloved, and so he didn't want to touch it <laughs> at the end. Yeah. And I see a similar uh, movement of the heart, a similar soulfulness in Augustine's willingness to throw it all away just to be with God, as we see in Augustine's willingness to change everything but that one encounter with his son. And, you know, again, drawing a lot, another loop back into the, you know, black liberation theology. I'm going to admit to something that's very embarrassing as a Spanish speaker. <laughs> but I like reading in Spanish a lot. I like writing in it a little bit. And, and I like talking in it a ton. Um, there's a formality, though, to Spanish. And especially to mm. the Spanish address. And especially to the ecclesiastical and academic Spanish yes. form. I mean, look, I, I kind of fell in love with Las Casas' voz you know, voice for stuff, you know, and it was fine. And, you know, um, the poetry of Sor Juana Ines really kind of shines with that nice, you know, Castilian vibe. Mm-hmm. But I'll admit, the formality drives me crazy. It ultimately is, again, I'm yeah. probably just saying how American I am, how assimilated I am. <laughs> but um, when I read the black intellectual tradition and the black prophetic tradition, and when I read Cone, when I read Du Bois, when I read, you know, Toni Morrison, mm. there's a soulfulness. And I don't know if I'm just talking about the differences between American English and Spanish, but I feel in my heart like there's a specific charism 
that this part in other words it's not just a sort of blackness on behalf of the dispossessed a kind of marginality because that in itself is a sort of a distorted i think uh take but that there's uh an awake an awakening to a particular part of the human condition a particular part Mm. of the blues um Mm. a a particular part of of the um of this scandal that you talk about that that simply no one else in human history had those had the experiences that could build that vision of christ for us right um but again we're just we're just uh we're improvising here this is jazz right well and i think i struggle with the moments where theology kind of falls into this like complex nature right because i'm always turning back to how i grew up and i've been reflecting on how i grew up for a while now um i you know quarantine gives you all the time to think that you never had before and you're you start thinking all these things that you're like oh i don't i don't want to think this anymore i want to go back to work but um and i'm thinking of the faith i had as a child and so I think of my faith right now in three stages. I'm 27 years old, so I feel like I'm kind of exiting out of the second stage. Okay. So I think of the faith I had as a child and then the faith I had as, as a teen and a young adult. And it was, it, it was, I struggled so much in it, but it was also so simple. And I think that's why I stayed within it, if that makes sense, right? Because, you know that that soulfulness that you just talked about with with the way in which just black liberation communi- communicates itself to its people into the world it's it's not about having even an intellectual hold on other people mm. it, it's literally about just like loving liberation them. in and of itself yeah loving them and caring for them and there's this beautiful simplicity to it but the simplicity is probably some of the most challenging work i've had to work mm. through right i have felt that you know studying other pedagogies of faith you know systematic moral theology etc uh i think i struggled less with that right um, than I did when I look back to the way in which my faith, the, the simplicity of my faith as a child, and then I look into all these different spaces where, again, faith is not being used as a tool of just intellectual gain or space. It's being used as a tool of love. And, and, and that's what it is. And that really, like, it captures my heart in a way nothing else can. And, and, you know, I had a really kind of not great encounter with the church in my previous job. Um, I left there last fall, um, and it was it was so just harmful for me that I almost left the church. And I think one of the reasons why I stayed and why I'm still here, right, is because I feel like God is bringing me back into that simplicity, into that this is this is a tool of love. You know, and um, mm. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like this just opened like a whole web for me. So there's like eight different things going on in my head right now that are like eight different strings in that web. But I think what draws me to um, the gospels, right? What draws me to 
Gutier is talking about being on the side of the poor is there is this simplicity in that theology that is just about what what love is right and how love manifests itself here uh, in a world that is tainted by by sin and by you know flawedness and by error, um, and how that love can still evolve despite that. And that's scandalous. Yeah. Like that's scandalous that yeah. those seeds can still grow in a world that I feel often has me so. It, it, I'm just like in this perpetual state of anger, right? Mm-hmm. And. Um, yeah, no, and, and I think another thing too for me is is going back to liberation theology. Uh, it, it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just for the theologians. It's not just for the mm-hmm. bishops. It's not just for the pre. It's for everybody. Like yeah. there's there's whole sections of Gutierrez's work where he talks about the lay people and and the the charisms of the lay people within this contextual mm-hmm. theology and and what the implications of that are and. Um, I think it's just so beautiful to see a table where you literally bring your whole self and your whole self does not have to include like a PhD or the even intellectual. Like you just bring your whole self and just know like, I wish to be loved and I yearn to love. And that's, that's, that's it. That's like the core of it. Um, No, totally. Yeah. I mean, if, if philosophy is the love of wisdom, then the theology that that love kind of created in the Christian tradition, you know, built from Athens and Rome and Jerusalem and 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 the Holy Spirit and, and Christ and, and God was, in some sense, the wisdom of love. Mm, yeah. And whereas theology is kind of like the attempt to to consult that wisdom it's there and you know when you talk about like you know what is love and what love is i i think of a few things and this will be the the last bit i ask you to respond to but there's that part in the miseducation of lauren hill where that teacher asks the question like what is love Mm -hmm. Uh, and and one of the students actually replies and there's this beautiful moment of the audacity to ask the question to a class what is love as a pedagogical question (laughs) and then even more audacious is a student who tells the the teacher exactly what love is and i think there's a there's something about that exchange that's always stood out to me as one of the like more remarkable examples of education pedagogy all these things but if you were to ask me like what is love you know i would talk about my grandma my abuelita Mm. and one thing that has always confounded me but also inspired me and also made me think of like this is love is that my abuelita never prayed to god in the uh full assertive capital d dios she only and exclusively prayed to Diosito. Mm. Yep. Oh, and that the just gave me chills. Yep. It, it, and I kind of feel like maybe the problem is that we liber- the message of liberation theology is that God is is capable of of creating the heavens and the earth Mm -hmm. 
but he can also get this small. Yeah. Oh, Sam. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I, I never want to lose sight of that. You know, like, I never want to lose sight of, at least for me, like, those moments where God grew small with me because I felt small and he didn't tower over me. He, he sat there with me in the same way crisscross that I was sitting against the wall. He sat there with me. And I think what draws me, even when I'm angry back into this space is that like like you said the god that can be so big and so so massive right can also be so small for us to encounter him so intimately and like what yeah. a, what a gift like and so when i think of love i think of of that which is life-giving mm. you know um yeah i i love i thank you for sharing that about your grandmother that really was was just so beautiful to be able to hold that with you yeah what a mighty tiny God we serve. Yeah. And 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 I love, and I'll end with this kind of, I love to think about the incarnational Christ, right? Because there are some times where I find myself doing things and I think, I wonder if he did this too. You know, I wonder if he had inside jokes. I wonder if... There was a certain way he liked his food to be cooked that his mom only knew how to do it. You know, I wonder if, you know, when he got tired, you know, did did he flex his ankles like I do after I cycle? Like all these stupid little things, right? But the fact is he probably did because he was fully with us. And and I think that's that's the core of, of all of this. That's the core of what all these these liberation theologians, scholars, movements, people within the context of theology, I think are trying to highlight is that not only is God for us, but God is with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whippenstock Publishers, Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, where Peter is, and the Juan Diego Network. I would also like to thank our featured sponsor for today, Commonweal Magazine, Once again, all listeners to Folk Phenomenology are entitled to subscribe to Commonweal for only $9.95. And also be sure to uh, check out the Commonweal podcast, one of the friends of the show. And if you're a student or recent graduate, you can sign up for a free subscription to Commonweal as well. The other friends of the show, including the Commonweal podcast, are the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. 
make sure to check out the show notes for links to our featured sponsor, Commonweal Magazine, to our other wonderful sponsors, and to the group of friends of the show that uh, we have here and that I consider myself so lucky to be able to count on as friends and supporters and community in this work. You can also find a tip jar, and if you're moved to contribute something uh, to this show, all contributions to the tip jar will be a bit of a boosting fund for the start of Season 2, which uh, has not started yet, uh, only in theory, but there's some upgrades I want to make to a few of the technical aspects of the show, and uh, so that will go a nice long way for that. We have now crossed the threshold of a quarter of the way into Folk Phenomenology Season 1. There is still 75% of the season uh, to share. And at this point, the way you can help most is to continue to help us to begin getting the word out about this podcast, to share it as much as you can and as much as you feel comfortable with on social media uh, and also to you know um, contact people who you think you know just one-on-one directly might be interested uh, in this podcast next week i'm in conversation with dr katherine addington uh katherine was about to defend her dissertation whenever we spoke and since then she has successfully defended and now has her PhD from the University of Virginia. She wrote her dissertation on Saint Raphael Aranis uh, and it is a work of translation and it is precisely that topic that we take up in conversation next week, namely translation in general, also the translation she's doing of Saint Raphael, the question of sanctity and the saint, and also a number of questions about language and the politics of translation, and also the dynamics between English and Spanish, and really so much more. It's an, it's another one of those episodes that's kind of short-sold on its one-word description. So please tune in for that. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, you can go to samrocha.com. Vanessa ended today's interview with that powerful note that God is not only for us, but God is with us. And this idea of being with implies a world where we dwell with God and with one another. And it's in this very situation that Vanessa so poetically and so powerfully highlighted and brought into focus that this show understands itself as a work of delight, as a work of love of the world, as a show that encourages and exhorts you all to love the world Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the 
most interesting, out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. It's where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I'm through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.